Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining with us to observe uh, Good Friday. Uh, within this 71-word series, we're continuing to follow the lead of the disciples as they come to Jesus and ask Him, uh, teach us to pray, leaning into what this looks like and how we live our lives, how we treat each other, how we think of ourselves. Jesus as God who draws a line in the sand separating us from the past and our future, and also the one who gives us a way to go into <clears throat> that future. He does so much for us in his God capacity, but he gives us even more to do in showing us the way to go, how to live in our current lives in our current days. And so within this context, 71 words uh, showing us how to pray, think, dream, interact, and be human. We want to look at uh, and observe what takes place, what Jesus speaks to on Good Friday. What we looked at yesterday in our Monday Thursday conversation and what we're taking some time to look at now are the last moments of Jesus' life. As I mentioned before, the law of the last would suggest God knew, Christ himself knew these were the last moments he was sharing with his disciples, with humanity, and so their, his words would be more precious. Uh, they would have more weight and value to them. We as people would do the same thing as we're walking out the door. Even maybe as my wife and I go on a date, the last thing we're going to say to our kids, we want them to remember. We'd take care of the house. Don't do this. Don't do that. We're not just going to be random in our communication. And so as God is preparing to leave uh, in the flesh, the form that he has known in Jesus, these are the last moments. In addition to that, especially surrounding familiar passages of Scripture like the crucifixion of Jesus, I find that we tend to read quicker. We tend to keep them at a shallower level, glossing over. And so hopefully we won't miss as much as we work through it this way. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the last seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross slowly, thoughtfully, and encourage you all to prayerfully consider them. If we were together, uh, we would offer opportunity for some discussion. So if you find yourself listening to this with someone, I would strongly encourage that. I'm not going to stop. You can pause this and, and engage in a conversation if you like, or just prayerfully sit for a moment. Let what we have discussed kind of sink in and meditate on the Spirit of the Lord and let Him guide you in that. We do all of this so that we can digest what God is wanting to deliver. You know, the context of the cross is the fullness of the heart and intention of God. And I want to read a passage from Colossians chapter 1. It says, verse 15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I mean, just pause for a moment. We get a sense that Jesus is pretty integral. 
and what is accomplished the cross is integral on top of integral. <laughs> Verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, speaking about us, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You know, if you're anything like me, I have struggled for years over some of the violence, in particular, uh, on the cross and what Jesus had to uh, undertake. There's a great book by Gregory Boyd. It's called Cross Vision. I would encourage everyone to read Cross Vision, how the crucifixion of Jesus makes sense of Old Testament violence. In that, uh, Gregory Boyd remarks, Jesus is what God looks like when no clouds get in the way. Before we read through these seven statements, I want to um, pull out from some of these pieces that Boyd has written. He says, Christians have almost always assumed that God must do it the way humans have always done it, and, not coincidentally, the way we've believed, quote-unquote, other gods to do it. God must resort to violence. He goes on, and I'm just taking from uh, his book, this book. And as I will now show, speaking of the book, if we keep our eyes firmly fixed on the cross, we will see that, as a matter of fact, God never needs to resort to violence to punish sin or to overcome evil. Christians believe that Jesus stood in our place on the cross and bore the judgment that we deserved. But many Christians assume this means that God the Father needed to vent his wrath toward Jesus by killing him so that he would need to vent his wrath against us by sending us to hell. This is one version of what's called the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. Uh, as an aside, that would communicate you must be penalized in order for the substitution to take place. While I firmly believe, he continues, Jesus died as our substitute, I think this way of understanding how and why Jesus died as our substitute has some insurmountable problems. Among other things, this view restricts Jesus restricts salvation to Jesus' death on the cross, thereby rendering the rest of his life and ministry superfluous in the terms of the way Jesus reconciles us to God. In this view, if Herod had succeeded in killing Jesus as an infant, his death would have had essentially the same saving effect. By contrast, I have argued, he does so early in the book, that the sacrificial love that was expressed in the cross weaves together and supremely expresses everything Jesus was about. His whole cross-centered life, from the incarnation to the ascension, reveals God, defeats evil, eradicates the condemnation of sin, reconciles us to God, and restores creation. On top of this, the penal substitutionary view of the atonement does not make clear how our guilt can be transferred to Jesus, nor how God the Father's decision to pour His wrath on Jesus rather than us is just. Moreover, in this view, Jesus doesn't reveal the Father's love as he speaks to in Romans 5.8, or Paul does. He saves us from the Father's wrath. And if Jesus had to die in order to pay the debt that we incurred by sinning against the Father, then the Father never really forgives anyone. Forgiveness means releasing a debt, not collecting it from someone else. Perhaps the most significant problem with this view, however, is practical in nature. In the penal substitutionary view, the Father solved the problem of our estrangement from Him by raging against and slaying His Son. This understanding is premised on the age-old assumption that violence fixes problems. 
what has been called the, quote, myth of redemptive violence, unquote. Sadly, the penal substitutionary view places the destructive myth at the center of history, history as well as the center of Christian theology. And if this is how the all-wise God solved humanity's ultimate problem, then it just makes sense that Christians should be open to resorting to violence to fix their problems. Notwithstanding, Jesus's and Paul's strong and clear teachings to the contrary. I'd encourage you all to read this book. There are other passages that I would like to highlight, but for the sake of time, I'll just uh, turn to the last seven statements of Jesus. So we're going to be jumping around a little bit. And as I said, I won't pause between the readings themselves. You can uh, find yourself uh, doing that through actually pausing uh, the recording. But the first statement that Jesus makes that we're going to look at, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And he has been led away at this point. In verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called Golgotha, the skull, they were crucified with him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he's, of course, speaking to the centurions, or speaking of those who were actually engaging in this act of crucifixion. I, I don't know about you, but I tend to picture God as this great multitasker. He's the ultimate DIY guy, all at the same time. But I'm coming to a different landing place with Him, with Jesus, and seeing how He responds to these moments. These soldiers and centurions are have beaten Him and bruised Him and broken His body. And here He is, hanging on a cross, and the first of the last statements is that he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This different landing place that I find myself in is one that accepts God as so laser-focused, so all-consumed with love towards mercy for and grace-giving that nothing else matters. Even in the midst of excruciating suffering, God is still focused on the task at hand. Forgiveness. That statement Jesus makes, Father, forgive them. I mean, in the middle of everything, He is so focused on this one thing. Or could it be that God isn't still focused on forgiveness, but rather, forgiveness is the only thing on which God is ever focused? We continue reading the second statement, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds? But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the second statement of Jesus. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. For me, this forces me to throw dogma, tradition, 
and what we think we need to do, what we think we need to know, what we think we need to understand in order to be in relationship with Jesus to the fullness, in order to have eternity. I'm becoming more and more convinced we spend unnecessary hours trying to learn, trying to listen, trying to understand when what we really need to know is that we are loved. I mean, this thief, this other person hanging on the cross doesn't pray a prayer. He doesn't go to a conference. He doesn't get away for a retreat on a weekend or whatever it is that we kind of often will unfortunately hang our hats of eternity on or salvation rather. He just says, hey, let me be with you. Jesus, remember me. And in that statement, Jesus responds, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. For me, it's a massive expression of Jesus' love that in any moment, as we turn to Christ, as we turn to God, His love is there waiting. Even in these last few seconds, these last few moments, this thief has on a cross next to Jesus. The third statement that Jesus makes, we're going to turn over to John chapter 19. In the middle of everything, we have Christ. So the soldiers did these things, verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I mean, come on. The third statement of Jesus on the cross for me, in the middle of everything, Christ only always seems to be able to address the one thing, this one thing. The notion he is the savior of all of humanity doesn't negate the fact that he is still a son. And his mother, his earthly mother needs to be cared for. What that speaks of to me is that God has bandwidth for everything. All of our circumstances, all of our needs, all of our relationships. The big, the small, the inconsequential, the fill in the blank. Whatever matters to you matters to God because you are His ultimate source of affection. He loves you. He's for us. The fourth statement that Jesus makes is going to take us to the Gospel of Matthew. And of course, all of these are aligned simply through the timeline. That's why we're jumping around. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, Christ knows fully what we familiarly know. 
separation from the Father. He is earning our wages of sin. Death is coming His way. He is being cut off. He is pulling from Psalm 22. I want to just go there and read that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Skip down to verse 14 of Psalm 22. It says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. Jesus here is calling out. He's reaching out as would be his normal. And in this moment, too, we are being given what he also has. This is a juxtaposition of Paul speaking to us in Romans 8 that we can cry out, Abba, Father. But in this moment, the fourth statement of Jesus, we see the separation. Again, that we know as familiar, Christ is taken upon Himself. The fifth statement of Jesus takes us to the Gospel of John. Back to the Gospel of John. Chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Remember, he is separated in this moment. This is the first statement he makes upon the separation happening according to the scriptures. The full weight and the cost of sin is taking hold. And so he thirsts to fulfill the prophecy stated in Psalm 69. And his thirst also reminds us of our thirst that we have perhaps become so accustomed to we forget that we have the thirst. But the first statement that Jesus makes upon being separated from the Father is a physical expression, an emotional response of lack. His thirst reminds us of our thirst, what our natural hungers and our natural yearnings are for, yet so often become a numb ache satiated by other things. The moment-to-moment cause us to miss the greater, deeper, Oh my soul, why are you downcast within me? As the psalmist writes in Chapter 42 of Psalms. The eye thirst of Jesus in that moment is a reminder of where we always are in that lack, in that lack of intimacy that we casually live in towards God's presence. The sixth statement takes us back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23.
It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness in the whole land. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I want to give the context of that statement. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, a sign of mourning. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This cry that Jesus makes, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is not a cry of defeat but of victory. This is not a moment of being conquered by death, but of conquering death. And we know this because when the centurion sees it, there's something different. This activity of crucifixion would have been very normal for this centurion, but even in this declaration, there's something different. The centurion's response makes this moment uniquely different from any of the other countless similar moments he's experienced. Because oftentimes people would have been out of control at the end. But Father, into your hands I commit my spirit is not an expression of an out of control soul, but is an ultimate expression of self-control. Father, I am giving you my spirit. And the final statement that Jesus makes on the cross is found in John chapter 19. After this, our jar full of wine stood there, and so they put a, a sponge full of sour wine. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Those words, it is finished, is really one word that Jesus would have said, teleo, which means fulfilled, executed, completed. There is in no way, shape, or form anything to be misunderstood with this word that Jesus uses. It's not just a word that means something has been done. It is an accounting term. It is what a tax collector, someone who worked with numbers and money, would have used to say, hey, it, the debt has been brought up to a place of payment. There is nothing that is owed anymore. Jesus' last words as he hangs on the cross, are ones of it is fulfilled, it has been accomplished, teleo. There is no more debt. There is no more lack. Nothing to be made up. And that is the final statement that Jesus makes on the cross. The cross is a place where we bring everything, where we take all of our debts, where we would bring everything of ourselves and leave only with one thing, forgiveness. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity again to gather in these terms. And as we have worked through these last seven statements of Jesus, we ask that the weight and the creativity of them, Father, what they're really speaking to in the soul nature of not only who we are, but what you have done and what you're inviting us into. We ask for the full weight and creativity of that to bear fruit 
in our lives and in our world today. We love you. We honor you. We thank you for your sacrifice. Let us grab hold of everything that you have accomplished and given to us through the cross. We love you. We honor you. And I ask and pray that we would all have a more tangible acceptance and understanding of your forgiveness today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me leave you all with a benediction from this time together. May we be a people who are mindful of Christ's death, His sacrifice of His own volition for us. May we be served by Christ, and may we serve others with Him. And may we always remember that with Jesus, it only gets better. We love you all so much. Thank you so much for joining with us.